Everybody, welcome back. I'm very excited about this next segment because this speaker and author that we have on the show here today is somebody who I've been following for a long time. He is an absolute wealth of knowledge. And I just heard him speak down at the Renewal in Florida. His name is William Federer, and he's a nationally known speaker, best-selling author, and the president of America's Amerisearch, which is a publishing company that's dedicated to researching America's heritage. And uh, he's also got the American Mini uh, Radio Show, which is a featured broadcast daily across America and the internet. And his faith in history television airs on the TCT network on stations across America. Mr. Federer, welcome to the program, sir. Hey, it's great to be with you, Todd. It's great to have you. And uh, there's so many different things going on uh, that we were talking about in the green room. There's so many different things that we can discuss. But I just heard you recently speak down there at the renewal and was very uh, blessed by what you had to say about the heritage, about the history of America and the similarities to Israel. And I wanted our audience to kind of hear some of that, because I think it's one of the best teachings I've heard. Uh, Can you just explain a little bit about what you said down at the renewal? Sure. So I spent several years researching every civilization that has ever existed on planet Earth. I wrote about it in a book called Change to Chains. It's the 6,000-year quest for global control. And so from the beginning of the invention of writing, Sumerian cuneiform on clay tablets in the Mesopotamian Valley, today that's Iraq, uh, from the beginning of the invention of writing, the most common form of government is a king. Yeah. Now, they go by different names, Pharaoh, Caesar, Kaiser, Sultan, Tsar, but power inevitably wants to concentrate into the hands of one person. It starts off with the first invention being the plow. The Bible talks about Cain being a tiller of the soil, and then people started hitting each other with him, and they turned into weapons, and then people felt insecure on their farms, and they began to gravitate together for protection, and they formed the first cities. Now, when you hmm. get people together, somebody's a little better at knowing how to fight than the rest, and everyone says, you be our captain. You know, we have a little of that in the, uh, the book of Judges where the, they all go to Jephthah, who's uh, a leader that's sort of out in the country. And they're like, Look, hey, we need you. You be our captain. And yeah. um, anyway, and so this captain organizes you. You win. That's a good thing. But then this captain uh, usually has kids and grandkids who everybody's grateful to. And then everybody sort of pays deference to. And then this family starts turning into a political family sort of a political machine, sort of a political gang. And before you know it, you got a king. And everybody in town has to kiss up to this family. And if you don't, you're ostracized, you're kicked out. And so that's the dilemma, is the the default setting for human government is kings. Hmm. Um, the, The dilemma, it goes back to human nature. You put some kids in a playpen, one takes the rattle from the others. You put some kids on a playground, one's the bully hogging the ball. You put some junior high girls in a clique, and one of them is the diva. You put some people (laughs) in the woods, one of them is an Indian chief, put them in an inner city, one of them is a gang leader. And all a king is, is a glorified gang leader. And it's a hierarchical system. If you are friends with the king, you are more equal. If you are not friends with the king, you are less equal. And if you're an enemy of the king, you're dead. It's called treason, or you're a slave. People say, I thought slavery started in 1619. <laughs> no, wherever you had the first king on top, you had slaves on the bottom. And, uh, and the kings thought they were being nice by not killing you, right? So you had kings right. fight battles and uh, you kill people. What do you do with the ones you don't kill? Well, you sort of sell them. And, uh, and so they thought they were being nice by not killing you. Anyway, so the, the most common form of government is kings. Now, 
there's two things I've observed is that throughout the centuries, there are military advancements. And so now kings can kill more people. And so instead right. of killing with a rock, like King killed Abel, they can kill with bronze weapons or iron weapons or phalanx spears, those big long spears that Alexander the Great's men had, or a scimitar sword that the Muslims had or gunpowder that the Chinese invented. The, the weapon improves, but it's that same fall in nature, a king kill and Abel just magnified through this military advancement. And then there are technological advancements that allows the king to track more people. Do you realize yeah. that uh, Augustus Caesar wanted to have a worldwide census? Uh, and that was his way of tracking everyone. If he could have had 5G and cell phones and chips and mm. you know satellite, he would have tracked everybody that way, right? Wow. And so yeah. as the centuries go on, the kings get bigger. And I track it in the book. I go through the Assyrian Empire, the Neo-Assyrian, the Babylonian, the, the 2,000 years of Egyptian pharaohs, the Indian Maharajas, Chinese emperors, you know, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, keeps getting bigger until finally, after 6,000 years of recorded history, the, the king of England was the most powerful king on the planet. The sun right. never set on the British Empire. They had Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, British Guyana, Canada, Barbados, Bermuda, Jamaica, and, and America. So yeah. the king of England was a globalist. He was a one-world government guy with him at the top. And America's founders didn't like that. And they broke away and they flipped it. And they made the people the king. So kings have subjects who are subjected to their will. Republics and democracies have citizens. The word citizen hmm. is Greek. It means co-king. And uh, so where did America's founders get this idea that we could rule ourselves without a king? Well, the New England pastors. Uh, what, where did they get their idea? From the Bible. What part of the Bible? That first 400-year period when Israel came out of Egypt before they got King Saul. Right. So around 1400 BC, Israel comes out of Egypt, and for 400 years, they don't have a king. This is the first instance in recorded human history of a nation with millions of people and no king. Hmm. You know, we read the book of Judges, it's sort of confusing, you know, but, but if you think of it, it's maximum individual liberty right. um, that it, you, you're, you own your own property, you can accumulate stuff. Uh, and so what I did uh, in a book called Who is the King in America, I, I list... Uh, about a dozen different items that ancient Israel had that were unique to them not having a king. And this is what America's founders copied. So uh, ancient Israel was the first nation with private land ownership. Okay. You know, they go into the promised land, every family gets land. Uh, we sort of think, well, that's nice. But when you look at it, wherever there's a king, you never really own the land. It is wow. always going to be conditional of you staying on the nice side of the king. You cross the king, he will take away the land and kill you. But in Israel, right. this first 400 years, the land was permanently titled to each family. If you own land, you can accumulate stuff. The Bible called that being blessed. Mm -hmm. And you can be moved upon in your heart to give away some of your stuff. The Bible called that charity. Sort of interesting. Uh, hmm. Lenin said... Uh, Socialism is a transition phase to communism, and Karl Marx says communism can be summed up in one sentence, abolition of private property. So yeah. if you don't own anything, how can you be charitable? How can you give right. away what you don't have? What, what are you going to steal from somebody? Now you're a thief, you've broken the law. No, God entrusts you with stuff, and you have the opportunity to manifest on the outside the love of God that's in your heart. Right. right? Um, another thing, ancient Israel was the first nation with no police. 
everyone was taught the law. Everyone helps enforce the law. So sort of like a, a mom watching a bunch of neighborhood kids. She has no problem correcting somebody else's kid. Right. In ancient Israel, everybody corrected everybody else. It was a self-policing system. Hmm. Ancient Israel was the first nation with no prisons, right? Hmm. Joseph was in Egypt. He was in prison for several years. Well, in Israel, when a crime was committed, you immediately got the accused and the elders. You went to the gates of the city and you had the trial right then. Wow. Of course, it was a city of refuge that you could run away to to await the trial, right? But it was an immediate thing. Uh, Israel had so they had, know, they had a speedy trial in Israel, basically. Yeah, so it wasn't like you know January sixth people that you just locked yeah. away uh, for a year and with 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 not even charging them with anything, just sort of detaining them. And it's like right. no, it's it's immediate. They're either innocent or they're guilty. Um, and um, and then Israel. Uh, had no standing army. You have a king, he has an army to enforce his will. Right. In Israel, there was no king for that first 400-year period before Saul, and every man was in the militia and armed with a sword upon their thigh, and they were ready at a moment's notice to defend their family and their community. Hmm. And then Israel... Um, had a uh, bureaucracy-free welfare system. What's Got that? It. So yeah. in Egypt, people were selling their souls to the Pharaoh in exchange for a bag of grain, right? right. Okay, we need grain. Okay, land, cattle, children. Well, But in Israel, when people were poor, when somebody harvested their field, they left the gleanings, the corners for the poor people to pick through, like Ruth, this mm -hmm. way, the poor were taken care of without some political leader collecting everything and doling it back out as favors to those that can keep them in power. Wow. And, um, and then Israel had uh, a system of honesty where God hates unjust weights and measures. So this became the basis for commerce. And, um, and, and there were other things, too. Uh, so Israel had a, uh, was the first nation that could read. I thought this okay. was fascinating. So we, yeah. we talked about Sumerian cuneiform. Uh, they had 1,500 cuneiform characters. I don't know about you, but memorizing 1,500 is not fun. <laughs> and yeah. But it was only for kings and court records, right? So the kings claimed to own everything in town, and they wanted to count it. And so yeah. writing started as an account, sort of like tallying. Have you ever drawn four lines, one, two, three, four, and then a line across for five? Yeah. Right? So that was the beginning of writing. Uh, then they had abacuses and rods with beads and, and little China had knots and ropes. But it was an right. accounting method, but only kings. And then in Egypt, they had 3,000 hieroglyphic characters. Wow. Only 1% right. of Egypt could read. Reading and writing was the scribes' secret knowledge. They actually kept the hieroglyphs complicated on purpose as job security. It was sure. needed as a class to interpret all these complicated little hieroglyphs. And then China had 10,000 characters only for court records, wow. only for the emperor and his scribes. The common people couldn't read or write. And right. why is this significant? So when Moses comes down the mountain, he does not just have the law. He has the law in a simple 22-character alphabet. First wow. letter is Aleph, second letter Beth. Sound familiar? It is so yeah. easy to learn. Kids can learn it. So um, not only did 
the Levites teach the law, they taught the people how to read the law for themselves. Wow. And so when you read the New Testament, you know, Jesus will say, you know, it is written or you have read. It's like he's talking to a literate populace. You know, when the Huns invaded Europe, they asked them where they came from. All they could do was point to the east. I mean, they couldn't read. They All they knew how to do was ride a horse and shoot bows right. and arrows. I mean, they knew nothing about their history, their heritage or anything. But the, the Bible, it, you know, the Israelites were a literate population. And, hmm. uh, and so this is significant in um, that they were a, a, a people, that they were given rights and blessings from God, and they could read the law so they could maintain their rights and their blessings. And then they were entrusted with stuff and they could voluntarily take care of their neighbor in charity. Why? Because they were doing it as unto the Lord. Wow. And, uh, and so that's amazing. Were- yeah. No, you know, it just reminds me because it's like all these young people, I was just watching a, a docufilm yesterday and, and they were sharing about how the young people are now wanting socialism and communism over uh, what our founders had created, which you're describing so well here, which is very significant in its relation to ancient Israel. And so how did we get so off course? I know you're going to kind of bring this all together here, but but how do we get from this amazing way that our founders set up the American system here in the Republic to now having this generation of, of, of young people that are being indoctrinated and taught that, you know, socialism and communism is the answer. Yeah, so uh, socialism, as the definition of Lenin, is a transition phase from capitalism to communism. And then Karl Marx said communism can be summed up in one sentence, abolition of private property. So we need to use their definitions because they're the ones that were pioneering and promoting this. And so uh, socialism sounds good until you think it through. Okay, Everybody, I wrote a book, it's called Socialism, The Real History from Plato to the Present. And you think Plato, well, he was the first one that actually talked about everybody owning everything in common. And it sounds good until you think it through. There has to be someone in the government that is handing out all this common stuff. Right. And they are going to be tempted to want to funnel a little extra to their family and friends on the side. Yes. And they're going to be tempted to hold back from somebody they just don't like. And before you know it, it gets discretionary. And there's a saying, he who holds the purse strings has the power. Yep. And so uh, every attempt at everybody owning everything equally always ends up with a deep state bureaucracy with the most corrupt politician at the top. Wow. And it happens every time. Yep. And um, now you contrast that to the early church. People say, well, the early church was socialist. No, no, no. The early church was the early church. Socialism is counterfeit early church. Mm. And the difference is between the word voluntary and involuntary. So the early believers voluntarily sold their property and laid the money at the feet of the apostles for the church to distribute. They didn't have the government take away their land and be forced to put the money involuntarily at the feet of Pilate for the Roman government. Here, Pilate, here's a little more money for you to spread the Roman Empire around. (laughs) No, Um, the Bible entrusts you with stuff and then you can manifest the love of God that's in your heart. And, um, you know, in the Bible, God gives commands to five groups, Uh, 
individuals, families, business, church, and government. The commands to individuals include taking care of the poor, visiting the sick, and so forth. Commands to families are mostly relational. Husbands, love your wives. Children, submit to your parents. Business commands are mostly do an honest day's work and don't hold back wages. Church commands definitely include taking care of the poor. And immediately they did. And they fed orphans and widows. And then through the centuries, started hospitals and medical clinics and took care of maimed soldiers and shut-ins and everything. Do you know there's no command for the government to take care of the poor? Hmm. The command to the government is the shortest. Protect the innocent, punish the guilty. There's no command for the government to be involved in healthcare. There's no command for the government to be involved in education. What's happened is the government has usurped the church's role. Wow. And we've let them. And it mostly happened under FDR and Lyndon Johnson. Prior to them, churches did all of the social programs. And they, in addition to maintaining a stable family population, you know, there is a financial fallout for loosening morals. So the right. number one item on most state budgets is welfare. It's taking care of the, the broken homes and the families. And then you have the drug issues. And then you have the crime issues. And you have the property values going down. Then you have the lost tax revenue from the property taxes going. I mean, there's a f- tremendous fallout. Well, it used to be that the churches were the center of the community and they helped keep the marriages together. Yep. And, um, but Lyndon Johnson found out that uh, if you can sign up people for welfare, especially give them more money if the home is broken, there's a financial incentive for the home to be broken. And once people sign up and get free money from the government, they have a strong motivation to vote for the politicians that will continue that. Right. I tell people, imagine if you were getting a thousand dollar check in the mail every week from someone you didn't know. Thousand dollar, thousand dollar. After a few years of this, would you wake up one day and ask yourself, who is this that's sending me a thousand dollars every week? I'm going to find out who they are and vote them out of office. No. Would anybody do that? I mean, no. that's, I, my kids got a couple more bills to pay. No, once right. you get people to receive free money from you, you can guarantee uh, that they'll vote for you. And so this is, but it destroyed the family. Uh, There's no military tactic as you co-opt your enemy's supply lines and you funnel the supplies to your forces. So in other words, you you tax your political opponents and then take that tax money and you give it out as welfare benefits to your political supporters. Right. Right. Um, Unbelievable. And so, so anyway, so, uh, so socialism is a bait and switch. Imagine if older fish could tell younger fish to stay away from shiny things dangling in the water, but they can't. So every new generation of younger fish sees that shiny thing and they're attracted to it and caught. Socialism is a shiny thing dangling in the water. Free food, free clothes, free education, free welfare, free, free, free. Free is attractive, but there's a hook there. You Hmm. trade your freedom. You trade your independence. You, you give it up in exchange for the handout. And, um, so I, I wrote a book, again, as it's Socialism, the Real History from Plato to the Present. And the subtitle is how the deep state capitalizes on crises to consolidate control. Right. And so if the most common form of government is a king and democracies and republics are attempts to take the power of a king and give it to the people, 
What if the king wants the power back? Does he just go to the people and say, hello, I want to be king. Give me complete control over your life. Oh, sure. Here you go. Is that how it works? No. So there are two methods in which the king can take the power back. Fear. When people are afraid, they will trade freedom for security. And the other is free stuff. He's really nice. He's giving you all kinds of nice things, but then you get dependent on it. And then he says, uh, you want some more? You're going to have to give up so a little incrementally your freedoms. It's like a drug dealer. Takes over a neighborhood two ways. He can come in with guns and shoot, and people get in fear, and they'll trade their freedom in exchange for the mob not killing him. Or the drug dealer is so nice, he's giving away free drugs. And then people get hooked. And then he says, oh, oh, you want some more free drugs? You're going to have to sell yourself into prostitution. You're going to have to rob from your neighbor." It's like a hunter gets animals through guns or with bait. Right. Right. And so you can trap them. And so these are the two methods that have been used through history. Um, It it happens um, sort of subconsciously, but it's been studied so much that you have philosophers like Machiavelli, like Hegel, like Karl Marx, that talk about intentionally creating fearful conditions so that people will intentionally panic and surrender their freedoms, or you do a great reset where you bankrupt the whole country or the whole world, and then you come along promising to take care of them, but it's in exchange for their freedom. And wow. um, so these these tactics have been studied. Karl Marx uh, had, well, how do you create a crisis that's real bad that makes people panic? He called it critical theory. Yeah. So you observe a country and get and identify all the groups and you call some victims and others oppressors, some haves and have-nots, and then you pit the groups against each other until it causes domestic violence. And then everybody panics in fear, and they beg the government to come in and restore order, and the government is happy to, but it's an exchange for your lives, your family, your, you know, your guns, your freedoms, and so forth. Wow. And um, so it's a, it's a studied-out strategy. And uh, so Karl Marx says, well, how do you create a crisis that's real bad? It's introducing an autoimmune disease to the body politic. What's that? An autoimmune disease is where your body attacks itself. Your immune system ends up attacking your own body. And so you have the patriotism is the enemy. You want to get people to identify with subgroups and then pit the subgroups against each other until it breaks out into violence. And when everybody has random violence and killing and looting and windows being smashed and things being set on fire, they're all going to panic. And it gives the government an excuse to come in and say, we'll restore order, but we're going to take away your freedoms. We're going to take away your guns. We're going to take away everything. And um, one of the first biblical documented instances of critical race theory being used is Abimelech. Okay. So that, that first 400-year period, but when Egypt, uh, Israel came out of Egypt, around 1400 BC, this is a century and a half before King Saul, and you have Gideon. And Gideon defeats 100,000 Midianites. That's a lot. And so there is no threat to Israel from the outside. They just defeated this massive army. Nobody's going to touch them. They got peace. But Gideon has an illegitimate son named Abimelech, and he goes to the town of Shechem, and he does 
identity race politics. He says, is it better for you that the sons of Gideon reign over you? Remember also that I am your flesh and your bone. And it says the men of Shechem said, well, we have to support Abimelech because he is our brother. So it's identity politics. It has nothing to do with whether he can do a good job or not. They're just identifying. And so then he goes to the city treasury, the temple of Balbarith, and he takes money, 70 pieces of silver, and he hires vain and worthless persons. These are Antifa type. These are BLM type to do what? Wow. To commit violence. Yep. And they commit violence and they kill all the other sons of Gideon. And then it says the men of Shechem made Abimelech king. So here you had a peaceful country and you had this introduction of division for the purpose of seizing power. And if it had not been for a lady, a woman throwing a millstone over a wall that had killed Abimelech, um, Israel's republic would have ended here rather than a century later with King Saul. Right. But um, it's, but it's, it's just like the Bible strategy. says, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. And what we're seeing in America now, I mean, you're so well articulating how this has happened before. And, uh, you know, it happens quick, you know, and, and here we are now. Uh, with this introduction of critical race theory into our schools and the division, you know, uh, I think of the Cloward and Piven strategy or the rules for radicals. You know, it seems like this is all being played out in our culture. Some people see it. Others don't. Uh, how can we turn this around, Mr. Federer? I mean, you know, obviously information is key, uh, but are, are we at a point of no return in American society or can this be turned around? You mentioned earlier the church is really pivotal. Can the church rise back up? Can there be some form of revival where, you know, the nation changes and goes back to our first love? Yeah, it has to be where the church uh, takes serious its role. You know, I, I just can't help but think that when... Jesus said, go into all the world, preach the gospel of every creature and so forth. I, I, I sort of think that he thought the kingdom of God would be like yeast and it would multiply and grow and go into every area of human endeavor. I, I sort of don't think that he had this thought, this, oh, oh just, um, but you can't touch the world. You can't touch the government. You can't touch, that's hands off. Uh, here's the son of God on earth saying, okay, this is, this is it. This is going to change everything, except you can't get involved in government. You can't, anything that's going to affect, you know, I, I don't believe that, you know, the word politics comes from the word polis, which is Greek for city. So politics is the business of the city. And you look at New England in America and you had pastors and churches founding cities you had a pastor, Thomas Hooker, and his church founded Hartford, Connecticut. You had a pastor, Roger Williams, and his church founded a Providence, Rhode Island. And a pastor, John Wheelwright, and his church founded Exeter, New Hampshire. And, and this is, was unique on the planet, that you had pastors and church. And they would have a building that they would call a meeting house. And that is where they would have church. And that's where they would discuss the business of the city. Wow. The word synagogue means meeting house, meeting place. And so in ancient Israel, they would all meet there and the, the Levites would teach them the law, but that's also where they would elect their city elders. That's also where they would meet and decide all kinds of things. And, and so they, and it was a bottom up. People say, well, you know, this is dominionism. No, no, no. Dominionism is top down. Our founders believed in bottom up, right? And so it's this idea that every single citizen gets rights and blessings from God. 
and all the citizens are equal and the citizens meet together and choose from amongst themselves who's going to fix the potholes in the road, who's going to defend against that, who's going to do this, who's going to do that. In other words, they were choosing from amongst equals who's going to have different responsibilities. It was a bottom-up representative form of government. And this came from their uh, ancient Israel, this model that they had where you know Moses spake into the children of Israel. He said, how can I alone bear your burden? Take you wise men and understanding and known among your tribes, and I'll make them rulers over you. This was an election process within each tribe. You know the people that hate covetousness. You just can't bribe them. They're honest. Moses says, look, you, you, you know those people. Bring them to me. I'll recognize them as your leaders. And so anybody in ancient Israel could be raised up into leadership. I mentioned Gideon from a nobody family or, or Deborah. Here's a woman. She's not related to royalty. It's just her. She knows the law. She's honest. The reputation spread. She sits under a tree. People make their way all the way across the country to have her hear their case. Where else in the world at this time could a woman become a national leader who's not related to royalty? It's just her knowing the law. And so in ancient Israel, anyone could be raised. It was a bottom-up form of government. Anyone could be raised up in leadership. And that was the model that pre-King Saul that was called the Hebrew Republic. And it was studied so much between the Reformation 1517 and the Age of Enlightenment in the early 1600s that the scholars in Europe were called Christian Hebraists. And they would study the Old Testament. They would visit with rabbis. Uh, They would study the Jerusalem Talmud, Mamanides. They'd they'd study all these different Jewish leaders to try to say, how did you do this? And so the, the, the Israel model worked because every citizen was taught the law. Every citizen was literate and they could read the law for themselves. And every citizen was entrusted with property. Every citizen had a weapon. Every citizen, right? It was a citizen dependent model. It emphasized the individual. And the whole thing worked because you as an individual believed three things. There was a God who was watching everyone. He wants you to be fair and he's going to hold you accountable in the future. So you're about to steal. Nobody's around you. No, you can get away with it. And they think God's watching me. He wants me to be fair. He's going to hold me accountable in the future. Maybe I should hesitate stealing. And it creates something in your head called the conscience. If everybody in the country really believes this, you can maintain complete security, safety for property. Women can go anywhere without fear because because you have a moral populace. Everybody knows the law. Everybody is personally accountable to God to follow the law, right? The law says there's no respect to persons in judgment. You're supposed to treat everybody equally and fairly. So you have a population of moral people. And so you're safe, but you get rid of this God. And then what are laws, but a bunch of things, some old men made up. Why follow them? Well, some will for a while. Others are going to say, forget this. They're going to yield to their selfish side. And they're going to start robbing and stealing and raping and killing. It's going to turn into chaos. And then everyone's going to say, we want some King Saul to come along and restore order. And he's happy to, but he's going to take away your property. He's going to kill all the Levites. And anyway, um, there, there's an interesting story and uh, where Saul is pouting that his son, Jonathan, became friends with David. 
And he turns to his soldiers and he goes, none of you care about me. One soldier, Doeg of the Edomite, says, King, I care. I saw David go to this town called Nob, and the priests there gave him some bread and the sword of Goliath. And Saul says, bring those priests to me. They show up, he turns to his men, says, kill them. Hmm. The men hesitate. Doeg the Edomite says, I'll kill him, goes out there and kills them all. What just happened? The, the soldiers had been operating under the old system. And the old system says that every citizen is personally accountable to God to follow the law. And the law says you need two or more witnesses before you condemn someone to death. There's only one witness, Doe. And so they're like, okay, King, you're telling me to kill. Uh, there's only one witness. I'm personally accountable. They're hesitating. They still have a conscience. Doeg says, King, I'm going to surrender my conscience to you. You tell me to kill, I'll mm. kill. You tell me to kill the baby in the womb, I'll kill it. You tell me there's no more male, no more female, fine, whatever. Wow. I'm just a bunch of mush. When you blow your trumpet, I'll bow to your statue, right? You know, I'm, I, I'm just totally going to surrender my conscience. I'm going to forget the Hippocratic oath. If you tell me to abort a baby or do a transgendered surgery or to get vaxxed, even if I have a moral, um, you know, hesitancy toward that, right. I'm just going to surrender my body to the government, right? And so uh, what we're seeing is that whenever the governments take control, they want to insert themselves between you and God. And God is a jealous God. He doesn't want a government inserted between you and him. Right. He wants a personal relationship with you. Um, he has the law. You're accountable to God to follow the law. Now, God knew that the Israelites would sin. And rather than them walk around for the rest of their life with a guilty conscience, once a year, they would have the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and they would yeah. bring the blood of the sacrifice into the Holy Holy, sprinkle it on the mercy seat lay their hands on a scapegoat and take it out and confess the sins of the country and take it out into the wilderness. It was symbolic that everybody's sins are forgiven for the past year. You start the new year off with a clean slate. Right. And of course that was fulfilled in Jesus, that he is our atonement that once and for all, not just every year, but once and for all, uh, our, Jesus has his blood was put on the Holy of Holies. And he was, he took the judgment rather than us all our sins were put upon him, Isaiah 53, and he was let out into the wilderness, right? He, he took yes. our sins away. And yes. so, um, but, uh, but anyway. That's the system that works. That's the way that we got to go back to. I mean, the founders had it right in establishing this republic and, you know, all the similarities to Israel. And uh, we, it seems like we've gotten pretty far from that, Mr. Federer. But uh, if the church rises up and we take our rightful position as the head and not the tail, and we start to uh, operate in all these, they call them mountains of influence, but whatever you want to call them, you know, get involved in government, get involved in the educational institutions, you know, get involved in all aspects of society and be the leaders instead of relying on government entitlements then I think we could turn this thing around, but it, it's high time we do it now. And, uh, you know, thank you for, for educating us on so many different aspects that I think people don't think about, uh, but yet we need to. And uh, even with the critical race theory and how it's dividing our culture and our society strategically in order to weaken us and to take away our rights and freedoms. Um, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that um, critical race theory says you cancel your enemies. The gospel says you forgive your enemies. Yes, yes. The Our Father says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, right? And so if you have critical race theory, you're, you're not going to heaven. What do, what do I mean? Well, 
as we, if, if you are making people pay for their sins mm. and not just them pay, their children pay and their grandchildren pay and their great-grandchildren, if you're, you have not forgiven them, that's, so you will be forgiven exactly the same way that you forgive them. And, yes. right? Uh, and Jesus over and over again says that, uh, you know, I, the one servant, you know, the, the master forgave him a huge debt and he goes out and takes somebody that owes him a little bit. And, you know, throws him in jail. And right. the master says, you wicked servant, I forgave you that huge amount. You wouldn't forgive him that little amount. And he says, so will your heavenly father do to everyone who is not forgiven from their heart. Yes. So we've all been treated bad. Yes, some have been treated worse than others. But we're still required, if you want to go to heaven, to forgive from your heart. And That's you right. will be forgiven exactly the same way that you forgive. And here's Jesus. He is completely innocent. He has the worst persecution, nailing him to the cross. He's our example. And what did he do at the top of the cross? He says, Father, forgive them. That's right. So we have an example of our Savior. When you are treated bad, you forgive. Right. So the critical race theory, you don't forgive your offenses. You harbor the offenses. Hmm. Right. You, you nurture the grudges. And then what do you do with Ezekiel? Ezekiel says that the child shall not pay for the parent's sins. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. But critical race theory says this little kid has to pay for the sins of some parent or grandparent or great grandparent uh, that they've never met. And and just because there's, and they can never do enough. It's a religion of works of which you can never do enough. There's not at some point where you finally says, okay, you've, you've paid it. So now you get to no. it's just forever. You're a bad person. And you're just, it's like in India, they have generational indebtedness, right? right? These poor Indian farmers um, that some great ancestor got in debt. And because of the interest rates and whatever, that debt just keeps being passed on to the kids and grandkids and great, and they'll never get free from it. Right. Yeah. And so the, uh, and then you have, the goal, goal line. So you've probably seen or heard about their little, um, all the kids line up on a starting line mm-hmm. and the person that's carrying on this exercise says, if you're from a home with a mommy and a daddy, you have a special advantage, take a step forward. And if you're from a home that's in a safe neighborhood, you have a special advantage, take a step forward. And if you, you know, finished high school and this, that is until you have some kids way in the front, and then the camera looks at the kids that are still on the starting line and they have this expression on their face like, man, this isn't fair. And it's a pretty convincing video until you ask yourself one question. What's the finish line? Hmm. Is the finish line how much stuff you can accumulate before you die and leave it all behind? Or is the finish line standing before God yeah. and him saying, yes, I blessed you. Some with five talents, some with two, some with one. But what did you do with it? Did you? Right. Help the poor. I was naked. Did you clothe me? I was hungry. Did you feed me? I was sick and in prison. Did you visit me? Whatever you do to the least of these, my brethren, you have done unto me. Yes. So we don't need to teach critical race theory in schools. We need to send youth pastors and evangelists into schools to get these kids born again. That's right. Because then they want to treat everybody better than themselves. Then their love will be the motivator. Yes, they'll yes. want to treat everybody good. Their whole rest of their life, they'll want to treat them good because the love of God is in them. It's not I this it. guilt of, oh, I'm afraid of being canceled, so I'm going to fake like I care about people. You really don't right. care about them. You just don't want to be canceled. 
Yeah. So, well, and it, so it, the gospel is the answer. Critical race theory is the counterfeit. Absolutely. It reminds me of Martin Luther King Jr. where he said, you know, we judge people not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, you know, and, and this is a totally opposite of that philosophy. And, you know, I remember uh, communist China, they, they were doing uh, like an investigation or a survey on, how, you know, why America was so successful, you know. And they were looking at, is it the educational institutions? Is it the form of government? Is it the economy? And what they came to find out in their reporting, and, and this is amazing, was it, it's the church and, and our faith. And uh, that has been the core about the American society is our faith in God and that we chose God. You know, while God chose Israel, America chose God. And we made a covenant with God. And I really believe that it's critical that we return to that and understand that that is the strength of the American culture is the church. And the church has to be the church. We have to rise up and uh, we can't let all these other things infiltrate and get our focus muddied because it's all about uh, Jesus Christ, as you said, getting people saved and set free and healed and delivered and returning back to our first love, Jesus Christ. Mr. Federer, you've done such an amazing job of articulating this as always. And I just thank you. Uh, you can see why he is my favorite to listen to because it's just so much information. Uh, how can we find you on the web? Where can we find your books and, and follow you, sir? Boy, you're so kind. My website is AmericanMinute.com, AmericanMinute.com. And I talked about several books today. One is called Who is the King in America? And then another one is called Socialism, The Real History from Plato to the Present. Awesome. Well, I definitely am going to be reading those books after hearing these recent speeches. And I just uh, appreciate everything that you're doing out there. So we're going to continue to follow you and we'd love to have you on again soon. I look forward to it. All right. Thank you, Mr. William Federer. We'll be right back with the Todd Coconaut Show. 